and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? I am your guest host today, Sarah Isger, and we will be talking to Mo Alethi. Mo is a frequent guest all over our podcasts and our lives, uh, but just in case you're not familiar, Mo was the spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton and basically a whole bunch of people with D's next to their name, but now he is the executive director of the Institute of Politics and Public Service at Georgetown University. We have endless things to talk about, ranging from Halloween to our favorite food trucks to, well, he had the vice president at George, the former vice president, Mike Pence, at Georgetown recently. What's going on at colleges? Maybe some midterms. We'll see if we even get there. Mo, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. So we were just discussing the fact that it's very important uh, to me that you're on The Remnant with me as the guest host, because Jonah's been trying to get you on for a long time and you've had conflicts. And it's so great that it worked out when uh, when he's not around, frankly. I will say, you know, I always enjoy coming on The Remnant with Jonah. We have some of the best conversations but the last few times he's tried, my schedule just hasn't worked. And when he heard me on the Dispatch podcast with you, I got a very snippy email from him. So we'll see <laughs> if another clear, one is forthcoming. I hope Jonah can see through that spin. I mean, this is a former comms director. Um, <laughs> he doesn't mean any of that, Jonah. He waited until I was guest hosting. And that's why he's here now, frankly. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I think that's in my my contract with you guys, right? That I now only talk to you. Yeah. And we've been doing the NPR show Left, Right, and Center together. We have. Um, so it's a lot of Mo and Sarah time. But, you know, we've spent lots of Mo and Sarah time together before. So we met when I was at the RNC and you were at the DNC. And for those who don't know, there's like a an L shape where the RNC is on the short part of the L and the DNC's after the long part of the L and the food trucks uh, are basically at the crux of the L. And that's really the only food option available if you work in those two places. And so we, we became food truck buddies. We did. It's sort of a culinary wasteland over there and that part of uh, part of Capitol Hill. And so uh, it was sort of like the fun part of the day was to go out and see which food trucks were out. And you and I were, typically on the same schedule. Um, I think you had an actual visual line of sight from your office or something. So you could see, and but I had to walk a couple of blocks and <laughs> we, we tended to have the same taste in like yes. greasy food, food truck food. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, we would talk about the fact that on the one hand, we think these bipartisan relationships were really important and on the other hand, they were also becoming increasingly unpopular. I mean, this was back in 2013, which doesn't feel like that long ago, but saying it out loud was a really long time ago. Um, and already, you know, I would go get breakfast tacos with your deputy and press secretary, and we would say stuff like, okay, everyone agrees, like, we're not posting this on social media, sort of a mutually assured destruction, just to hang out with people who worked across the way. Now I wonder not whether, of course, they wouldn't be willing to post it on social media or brag about their bipartisan friendships, but I'm not sure the bipartisan friendships exist now. 
Yeah. And look, I know that, you know, some of the people that have had these roles since us, um, uh, they will still work with one another. There's still some level of professional courtesy to one another. But I think you're right that, that a lot of the personal friendships, um, there, there may have been some professional respect for one another, but maybe not as much personal respect as we had back then. And, and I'll, I remember a day a really, really bad story came out for, uh, about the DNC chair at the time. It was sort of one of those blockbuster, like everyone kind of put down what they were doing in order to read that story. And Debbie Wasserman Schultz was chair at that point. That's right. And moments before it hit, I reached out to Sean Spicer, who was the RNC comms director at the time. And I said, this is about to hit. You're going to do what you need to do. But do me a favor. Don't troll my staff today on Twitter, because this is like a, a hard story for us uh, to deal with. And he respected that. And I always appreciated that. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know how much the two party committees actually do collaborate on some things, right? We have to collaborate when it comes to scheduling the national party conventions to make sure that, you know, the logistics there don't bump into one another. And I remember a story once about how the rise of super PACs were killing the national party committees and our team working with your team to coordinate some sort of a, uh, a response because that wasn't a good story for either party or for democracy. So there is a lot of collaboration, but, um, but I do think it, it was, I do miss a better time when there were actually some personal friendships that went along with that uh, professional relationship. You spend a lot more time on a college campus than I do, but I teach once a week at George Washington university. And, you know, we both read these studies about, this generation and how they view people who don't agree with them politically, they're not willing to date them, but increasingly they're not willing to be roommates with them, for instance, or be friends with them. Um, and as these campuses get less and less representative, I I'm concerned just for sort of the future political operatives that they're not going to be bilingual. I mean, I think that it would stun people how well you and I could have a debate on any major political issue and take the other person's political party's side. You know, I, one of the things we stress here at our institute is it is incredibly important to understand where people are coming from. Not even your opponent, but just people are coming from. We, we have become, as a society, more isolated from one another, right? Sociologists have been talking for since the 1980s about this phenomenon called the big sort, where increasingly we are moving into neighborhoods surrounded by people who think like we do, sound like we do, look like we do. And so we have been physically actually sorting ourselves. And that's increased beyond just where we live. We go to school and work surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. And our social media feeds are surrounded by people who think and sound like we do. And we get our news from places that reinforce what we already think. The television shows that we share in common are now largely correlated with partisanship. It's not just political. It's a social, cultural um, uh, sorting. In, in our most recent poll, we asked people about their circles. And what was stunning was 
an overwhelming majority of Americans say they do not have friends or family who do not share their political views, do not share their race, do not share their economic status, do not share their faith. So we have really sorted ourselves. And when we do that and we isolate ourselves from other people and other perspectives, we can never understand that. And that's what allows people on my side of the aisle in 2016 to run around the country and say, anybody who supports Donald Trump must be a racist or a misogynist or an enabler of racism and misogyny. And it allows people on the other side, on your side, to look at me and say, you just are, just because you have a D next in your name, you must be a socialist member of the woke mob. And so we are assigning motivations to other people before we even hear what they have to say. And that's a real problem. And what we say to our students here is we'll never find common ground if we keep doing that, but let's put that aside because in politics, there are going to be winners and losers. We will never be effective advocates for our own side. If we actually don't understand where people are, where they're coming from, if we hadn't run around saying every Trump supporter was a racist or a misogynist, we would have heard the ones who weren't and made a better case to them. If people on the right stop calling me a socialist member of the woke mob, maybe they'll actually hear what my concerns are and make a better case to me. So I think it is really critical that we find ways to pop these filter bubbles in every aspect of our lives. I think there are a lot of college campuses that are working on that and trying to do that. Um, but it's got, and, and that's important, but like the adult world needs that too, um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it's astonishing to me how few people engage with people who are unlike them. I also think there's like a certain nut picking aspect like an otherizing where, for instance, I was mm-hmm. just answering this comment to one of our other dispatch podcasts. And in short, the comment was um, the Republican party are a huge threat to democracy. They want to end this country. They're racist. And by the way, I've never heard of someone on my side being in favor of open borders. And it was like, wow. Okay. On the one hand, you believe the most extreme version of the other side that you don't belong to, but then totally reject that there's any extremists on your side, which is also kind of fascinating, the just cognitive dissonance you kind of have to have to reject the one side of extremism and not the other, and also be, you know, you're listening to the dispatch, you're clearly not a crazy person. (laughs) This isn't someone who is, you know, addicted to to MSNBC or something like that. And I think that, again, when you don't know people outside of agreement on religion and politics and these, you know, what TV shows you're even watching, I think it's just very easy to build up that caricature based on the nutpicking, the the craziest actors who get the most attention on Twitter or on TV who attract the news, which is also a really dangerous part of this, is that we give attention to the squeakiest, loudest, craziest voices. Um, And I, you know, one of the things that I think I hear Democrats talk about a lot in retrospect is that they were rooting for Trump in the Republican primaries because they thought he'd be the easiest to beat because he was so insane. And then those chickens came home to roost. But yet fast forward to 2022 and you have Chuck Schumer's super PAC, you know, putting in tons of money to defeat the moderate Republicans 
who Democrats say are necessary to have a healthy democracy, but they don't want them in office. And instead, they're willing to roll the dice that they'll get a Democrat over the craziest, most extreme version of the Republican who then gets through the primary. And just to be clear, obviously, Republican primary voters voted for that person. Uh-huh. So it's not somehow that Chuck Schumer got to, you know, pick his opponent out of nowhere. But in a lot of these races, that person had incredibly low name ID. They didn't raise any money. The vast majority, if not all of their television advertising was done by Chuck Schumer, which is concerning, right? Because we keep playing the same game over again. And it's hard, I think, for someone to actually hear what you and I are saying about like, no, 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 most people aren't the extremes. They're not the crazy wing when frankly, both political parties now see the advantage of making sure that the only voice their own side hears are the craziest voices from the other side. Yeah, I mean, the incentive structure in our politics and media ecosystems is so out of whack. And a lot of that is because the people in charge of those worlds are cynical and they get that there is political and commercial appeal to extremism. Yeah, they're willing to play the short-term game, win this cycle, win that seat, worry about the bigger stuff later. But Mo, you're not cynical. I'm not a cynic. We're skeptics, but we're not cynics. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? Like, I'm not going to let the political leaders who play that game and the media executives who play that game off scot-free. They deserve um, quite a bit of, you know, they deserve your and my disdain for the way they play this game. But let's be clear that we can't let ourselves as the citizenry off the hook either. We are the ones who are allowing this incentive structure, right? We don't always get the government we want. We definitely don't always get the government we deserve, but we sure as hell get the government we allow. And when we we're the clickers in the clickbait, right? When we allow a member of Congress to say incendiary things, they may get pilloried in the press, they may get censured, they may get stripped of committee assignments, but then they can go out and raise $3 million overnight in $25 increments. There's no incentive for them to stop. And in fact, we are sending the message that the incentive, that there's incentive for others to follow suit. Whether you think Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow is the devil incarnate. They are still the highest rated people, or before she stepped away, at least the two of them were the two highest rated people in cable news. Why? Because we tune in. We as a citizenry tune in. We are incentivizing them. If we didn't like it, if we don't like that kind of strident language, turn the channel. If we don't like political leaders, saying the things that they say, then stop giving them money, stop voting Mo, for them. It's so few people. It is so few people. Tucker Carlson gets 3 million viewers a night out of a country of 350. I can't get those 3 million people to stop watching. And, th- and that's fair. My point is though, you know, in our polling, and we've talked about this before, we ask people about polarization. How bad do they think it is? Who do they blame? But we also try to get at the question of, do they want it? When we ask them how bad it is, they think it's bad. Three quarters of the country thinks, or no, I'm sorry, an overwhelming majority of of people in the country believe we are three quarters of the way to civil war. That's the mean response on a scale of zero to 100. 
they say 93% of people say they would like more civility in our politics. But then when we ask the question differently, we see this, this push and pull. Agree or disagree with the following statement. Common ground and compromise are noble goals we want our leaders to aspire to. 78% of people say they agree with that, that they would like to see their leaders pursuing common ground and compromise. The lit- literally the next question, agree or disagree with this statement. I am tired of leaders who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up and fight the other side. 73% of people say they, they agree with that. And just to we be clear, saying, these are the same, like you're, you're sitting and being asked a poll the same, the same person, person is getting these yes. two questions back to back. In a row. That's wild. Right? What we're essentially saying as a nation is, I want common ground. As soon as you're standing where I am, we'll be on common ground. <laughs> we need to, we, there needs to be compromise. You're the one that has to do it. And so if you are a political leader or a media executive, that's a hard line to walk if you want to be responsive to the people, which way do you, do I find common ground or do I take a hard line stance on behalf of my team? I'm not letting them off the hook because leadership means you got to lead and bring people along with you. But we as a citizenry can't be let off the hook either. We have to start demanding better. So, so many things I want to talk about from there. You know, one of the things to talk about is the actual structural changes that you can make to change these incentives to help voters actually get what they want. So there's a few different things I'm talking about here. One is obviously on the ballots themselves, moving to nonpartisan primaries. A second is doing ranked choice voting in general elections. Alaska's doing both, which is a really interesting idea. I don't even know that you need both. Frankly, one or the other might do the trick. Um, And then the third element to me, and this is the one I'm most curious to hear Mo's thoughts on, because I know you listeners have heard my thoughts on them and read them many times. I think our campaign finance system, while well-intentioned when uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was passed in 2002, has created the most perverse incentives that has weakened the national political parties, something that I, again, was all for in 2001. Thought that was crazy. Who needs political parties? Uh, Two, basically ended large dollar donor programs. You know, these fat cats with their money are controlling our politics. Again, something that sounded like a really good idea to end back in 2001. Uh, And then number three, as a result of that, it's all gone into small dollar donors, which means that every single moment of your time can be spent raising money. That wasn't the case before. You used to do a town hall and then you'd go to a donor dinner. Now, Every time you do that town hall, you have a staffer with an iPhone recording it so that they can clip it for social media. And then when you go on TV or radio, everything is the ability for you to say something that will help you break through to raise money. So yep, you get kicked off a committee for saying something racist. Great. You just broke through. You're having a moment. Definitely go raise those small dollars. And I think that's from campaign finance reform. I think if you had the Texas, Pennsylvania, Virginia system of full disclosure, but no limits, those states haven't fallen apart because they don't have the relatively very low federal limits. I think it's 2,900 this cycle. Um, 
I definitely remember 20 years ago when I started and it was 19. <laughs> um, was it 17 or 19? Anyway, it was low. But so I want your thoughts on all three of those structural changes. I mean, I, I, I think you and I are pretty close to singing off the same song sheet when it comes to campaign finance. <gasps> I, I think um, for a very long time, the you know big money was the boogeyman. Um, but what I think you said it exactly right that small money is as much of you know small dollars are now as much of a boogeyman as big dollars because again it is playing to extremism it is playing to um, negativity and anger right there there are two emotions that motivate every single person's political activity right it were two buckets of emotion hope and aspiration or fear and anger. One of them is easier to mobilize than the other. Yep. I'd add and outrage, so, outrage and anger. Yeah. Yeah. And that outrage, that anger is driven by fear. So stirring that all up, yep. you know, can get you $3 million in $25 increments overnight. That's not healthy for the system. Because again, we're talking very few people. It's a little like the the Tucker Carlson viewership numbers. The actual number of people giving those $20, $25, so few. But as long as they're out there, it's it, the incentives are there to not go to the big donors who had sort of an agenda-setting mechanism. Again, one that a lot of people didn't like, one that I didn't always like. And I, there were a lot of reasons to complain about it. And in that sense, we do have a more democratized agenda-setting mechanism. The problem is it's still not representative, even if it's literally more numbers of people and maybe those people are, you know, uh, lower income, less well-educated, I'm saying in comparison to the large donors. It turns out, though, that's not a fix for much. Look, every time we try to reform our finance system, and frankly, our political system, we open up a door to a whole new set of problems. We may fix some, but we open up a door to a whole new set of unintended consequences. We did decide to democratize our democracy by taking uh, primaries, uh, the, the selection of our party's candidates away from the parties, right? We are a very weak party system ever since we took away the, the smoke-filled back rooms where each party selected their, their nominees and then put them in front of the electorate. That was the first huge blow. The second huge blow was ending the, um, I forget what we were calling it, the soft money loopholes right. where you could give basically unlimited money to parties for party building, which of course, that was how they were then picking their candidates with money once they couldn't pick them through actually just picking them. That's right. Now, I am not, unless you're, I, I confuse your your listeners, I'm not suggesting we go back to smoke-filled back rooms or maybe Jonah today is. it would be vape-filled, right? <laughs> but, but I do think that we do need to understand that, right? Like we have weakened our parties, which means we have taken away the organization that we had had around these two worldviews that have dominated our politics since the birth of the Republic. And, you know, I took a group of students to the UK in 2017 to observe their election, their snap general election. And it was really fascinating the number we did sort of man and woman on the street interviews or our students did. And the number of your average Londoner 
who could tell you what was in the Tory party manifesto or the Labour Party manifesto, which is their version of platforms, right, was really stunning to me. You know, I was the spokesperson for the DNC. I didn't read the DNC platform. I actually don't know what was in the party platform. Why? Because I was there when Barack Obama was in the White House. And so he set the agenda. He set the party's uh, uh, vision and 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 we followed him. Same is true on the Republican side. Once we took away the party's ability to set their agendas we, we changed the nature of our, of our politics. Donald Trump in 2016 ran a very different type of campaign with a very different type of message than your typical conservative. And in fact, he would stand on the debate stage and all of his opponents would point to him and say, Donald, you're not a real conservative. And a majority, at least a plurality of primary voters said, I don't know what that means anymore, but this guy is saying something that connects with me on a different level. He defeated the Republican Party before he defeated the Democratic Party. Quite so. And then four years later, right? Four <laughs> years later, when he was running for re-election, the party at least was honest enough to say, we're not, we don't even need a platform. We're just going to support the Trump agenda. We can say that's fine, right? But we have to understand that that has that has radically changed the nature of our politics. We have moved away from ideologically driven worldviews to personality driven politics. And that's true, right? Celebrity driven politics on both sides of the aisle. Barack Obama was a celebrity, a different kind, but he was a celebrity. Hillary Clinton was a celebrity. Yeah, I mean, people don't remember that. Kennedys are celebrities. Rockefellers are celebrities. We've had celebrity politics for a long time. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura. It's just that the Ronald pace... Reagan. Oh, yeah, Ronald Reagan, obviously. Um, the pace has been picking up. And the type of celebrity is now Dr. Oz, Donald Trump, Herschel Walker. And that's because of the weakening and the weakening... But, you know, the weakening of the parties yep. have not just accelerated it but it has allowed these celebrities to completely radically change what each party stands for. And it can, the if next anything, celebrity can then change it yes. into something else, right? If anything, you know, there's a real argument that the parties at this point are hurtling towards platforms that are at least we're not the other guys. And then a caricature of what the other guys are that is not totally based in reality. You know, last time you were on the Dispatch podcast, we got a lot of questions about third parties and what your thoughts are on a viable third party. And this feeds into it because in theory, I think you could have a celebrity candidate. You know, if you had Donald Trump with near universal name ID, that person could make headway as a third party candidate. That the barrier, in my view, is a very, very practical one. It's very hard to get on the ballot and it takes an enormous amount of money and bandwidth and people to do that and you need it up front. And so you've got to start with a lot of money and name ID in order to get on the ballot in these states. So I think, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I think there's a bigger problem. And that is in my lifetime, I've yet to see a viable third party movement rise for the earlier point you made. Every third party that has gotten any attention or attempt at a third party has run on the platform of, look how much the other two suck. 
look how bad the other two parties are. We should send a message that we're not going to stand for that. But they don't stand for anything themselves. I've yet to see a third party that stands for anything other than reform. I mean, this is the problem with the forward party. Philosophically, that's a nothingness. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they stand for. Now, I think the moment I I have always been a huge skeptic of third parties because I have always believed it's just not in our DNA. Yep. We have been a two party uh, system since the birth of the Republic. Right. First, it was the Federalists and the non-Federalists. And then you had the, the, the Democratic Republicans and then the, the Whigs. But every time one party rose, it was because another one was dying. We always hit equilibrium. Even think the Bull Moose Party. Right. Think Ross Perot. The one party will see an opportunity and sort of hungry, hungry hippo up the third party's voters somehow. That's exactly right. So I've always thought we just would never get there because it's just not who we are. This might be the moment for a third party, but what, but some, they've got to stand for something. Does Is it a new conservative party, which is actually where old conservatives go, right? And it's different than populist, than the populism that's that's defining the Republican Party. Is it a new progressive party, right? That's that that is the the populist on our side. I don't know. This could be the moment, but they've got to stand for something. But here's my final point on this. Because I and I ask this, I I speak to international groups often about all this. And they always ask me, isn't part of the problem with your system that you guys are stuck in this two-party thing? Like maybe, but point me to the multi-party parliamentary system that doesn't struggle with some of these same challenges. Yeah, it's not a fix either. Look at the UK, right? They've got they've got multiple parties. Look what do you mean? At, Everything seems really stable and normal over there right now. Right? I mean, and they almost were the harbingers of what we're facing here. We, yeah. I knew Donald Trump was a, a viable candidate as soon as the Brit, you know the Brits voted for Brexit, voted to leave. Um, look at the most recent French elections and the fact that it went to a runoff. Look at what just happened in Italy. Um, right, we are seeing some of the same tensions and fissures and challenges in Western style democracies everywhere, including those that have multi party systems. Which I think is a populist movement stemming from the 2008 financial collapse that, frankly, like the cable news punditry likes to focus on what's the thing that happened last month, maybe earlier this year that could be affecting this election. It goes and back actually, before the that. biggest thing is fine, yeah, but there are these big tectonic plates moving our politics. It's been 50 years. It's been 50 years in the making. Go back to the mid-70s in the wake of Watergate and Vietnam when people started really losing trust in government in a way they hadn't in a very long time. Actually, we can even go back a decade before that. Look at the 60s, right? The entire decade of the 60s, then Watergate. And then the government just proved how incompetent it was over and over again and how people were saying one thing and doing another. This is like the rise of opposition research. Yeah. And what you saw in 08 with the financial collapse was that the lack of trust in institutions was not limited just to government. Right. And most institutions in this country, including big business, including Silicon Valley, including academia, every major institution right now is upside down in its trust rating. There's a reason why after the financial collapse and Barack Obama's election in 2008, 
One year later, you had the rise of both the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. And you know what? They were saying the same thing they, in different ways, but they were both saying Wall Street and Washington are in cahoots and they're leaving me behind. Really fascinating, by the way, that both of those turn into, morph into, evolve into something else, that neither one actually survived in its original form. The Tea Party turns into MAGA. You'd have no one identifying themselves as a Tea Party Republican anymore. And Occupy, I don't hear anyone identifying as Occupy. They identify as either progressive, which is now much, much bigger, or Sunrise Movement. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. I mean, this has been an evolution going back now for five decades. And people in this town, people in the Acela Corridor, you know, are still talking left versus right. But the real paradigm now is front versus back. People who feel stuck at the back of the line versus everybody in front of them that they think are holding them back and the institutions that are abetting that. And 90% of the country feels that they're stuck at the back of the line and that everybody is moving ahead of them at their expense. That's the real paradigm. Mo, do you ever drive south on GW Parkway towards 395? There's the worst interchange in America, as best I can tell. So this is a two-lane, no-lights road, GW Parkway. And if you want to get on the freeway heading into D.C., um, they create a tiny, tiny little third lane just for a few hundred yards. And so it backs up all the way up GW Parkway. And you're like sitting there staring at the river stopped because that second lane, if you want to be generous, you can leave it open and allow the people who aren't trying to get on the freeway to go by. It's what gets you to the airport in Alexandria if you're heading south. But an increasing number of those people, I think, cheat. They get in the second lane, go up to the entrance to the freeway, and then cut in. And the more you see people doing that, the more you decide that you don't want to be the chump waiting in that lane that's all the way backed up. And so you go in the second lane. Maybe you have a reason to do it that that day. You're really late for an important work meeting. And if everyone knew that, they'd really understand why you're cutting. But slowly but surely, there's a tipping point And now all the lanes are just clogged and you can't get through GW Parkway at all. And it's a metaphor. (laughs) But also, (laughs) it's a metaphor, but also it particularly drives me insane because it feels like there is a solution to this that some civil engineer can come up with. And I don't understand why we've allowed civil society to break down on GW Parkway. This is the problem, right? And it goes back to the incentive structure. We are going through something right now that we went through about a hundred years ago. A lot of the rhetoric that we hear in today's politics was not too dissimilar from stuff we had about a hundred years ago. What was happening in about a hundred years ago? We were transitioning from an agrarian to an industrial economy. And that created a tremendous amount of economic, political, and cultural upheaval, just change. 100 years later, we are transitioning from an industrial into an information and digital economy, which is creating a tremendous amount of economic, cultural, and political upheaval. Rather than figure out ways to actually address that legitimate concern that so many people are having about all this change, right? Nothing freaks us out more than that which we do not know. And when our entire way of lives, as we've known them for a couple of generations, are suddenly getting turned upside down, we're going to freak out. 
Again, what do we do with that? Do we help them understand what the next step is and show it to them and provide it to them? Or do we say, you know what? I'm going to be pissed off right there alongside with you. Let's go be, let's go storm, storm the gates together. The incentive right now is in the latter. Can I read you uh, some uh, polling statistic? And you know how I feel about issue polls. Mm-hmm. But, you know, <laughs> there's good issue polls and bad issue polls. Most of them, I think, are bad. But this one's sort of interesting, If even if the numbers are a little off, let's say. Uh, New York Times-Siena College poll. 45% of Americans regard Trump as a major threat to democracy. All right, that sounds about right to me. 28% say that the GOP is a major threat to democracy. 33% say that the Democratic Party is a major threat to democracy. So more people, or about the same number of people, think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are threats to democracy. And when you broke it down into independence, so take out the Republicans and the Democrats from that, about 60% view each party as at least a minor threat, <laughs> okay? That's your space for a third party there, by the way. 23% view the GOP as a major threat. 31% say the Democrats are a major threat. What is happening at this point? Like, we've moved from, you know, they're the woke mob, and this is the most important election of my lifetime, to the country will end if they win. Uh-huh. And it's. Both. And it's again, it's not even just the partisans driving those numbers. These are non-affiliated voters who presumably bounce back and forth. I mean, there's screens for this when you, you know, do a poll, as you know. And, uh, you know, independents are saying both of these political parties are threats to democracy and the Democrats might be more so. I'm glad that they actually broke it down because I've seen so many polls lately that show 70, 80 percent of the country believes that democracy is under assault. And you listen to talking heads and they all say, see, this just shows how out of whack MAGA is and Trump. Right. And, right? and it's like, no, no, no. But Uh-oh. the thing is, right, like the P and I am certainly, you know, I, I certainly have my views on this and, and they're not secret, but the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th believe that they were guardians of democracy. I don't agree with them. Right? Yeah, yeah. But but very few people believe they're the bad guy and act out being the bad guy. Nobody is anti-democracy, if you ask them, right? Nobody. They believe that democracy is under assault from other forces and that they and their communities have to do more to stop that. And that is really concerning. We used to be able to at least unify behind the flag. You have bitter fights while we were behind there, but we could still unify behind a common sense of what it means to be an American. I'm also not going to be Pollyannish there because there are entire segments of our population that never felt like they were truly invited along on that journey. But that has added to that sense of otherization. That is added to as some of those voices suddenly started to get elevated. Others saw it as a zero sum game. If they are going to have a louder voice, then that means they're trying to silence mine. And it's that sense of us versus them. Everything is zero sum. There's no way to lift us all that has fueled so much of this. We, we used to be at our best 
when we face an, a, a common external threat. We faced one of the biggest common external threats since 9-11 over the past two years in COVID, and that just drove us further apart. So, you know, I'm really good at lamenting and identifying the problems. <laughs> I'm terrible at identifying solutions. Well, but no, let me give you, let me ask you a question. Um, Muhammad Ali, you're a practicing Muslim. I was raised Muslim. I'm not so practicing, but I was raised Muslim. Yeah. The Republican nominee and at this point leading candidate for Senate in Pennsylvania is a foreign born Muslim Republican. That's one of those groups that wasn't brought along on that journey, as you described, uh-huh. um, and a group that was attacked for being n- not American, not patriotic enough. They sort of constantly had to prove that they actually wanted to be here, actually wanted to become part of the fabric. Um, I don't know. Isn't that a good sign that Republicans are so gung-ho about a foreign-born Muslim candidate in Pennsylvania? Look, I, I applaud Anytime, right? Uh, you and I had this conversation when Hillary Clinton became the Democratic nominee in 2016, that even though she wasn't your choice of candidate, that that was a good sign for America, right? When Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, it was a good sign for America. I felt that way when Nikki Haley became governor of South Carolina or Bobby Jindal became governor of Louisiana. I would never have voted for them, but it showed progress. It showed that we we're moving forward. Bobby Jindal, man. <sighs> Remember him? <laughs> but there's this polling, and this kind of connects back to this, which I just find so fascinating. I forget who does it, but they've been asking this for quite some time. I would be upset if my child married or dated someone outside of my fill-in-the-blank. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you're bringing up this question. Yep. And for the first time, People are more upset if their children date or marry someone outside of their party than of their faith or their race. Now, I guess that's progress, right? I guess that's progress. See, I think this might be a good thing. Yes, I actually, because I think we can fix the political tribalism. And if at the end of that, through that tunnel, we accidentally fixed the religious and the racial tribalism. I'm not saying that we won't have some other type of tribalism. I think we're headed to some other potentially very negative tribalisms around education and class. The biggest predictors of how you voted in the last couple of elections were not your ideology or your partisan identification. They were your geography, right? The closer you live to the downtown of a major city, the more likely you voted for a Democrat. The further away you live from the downtown of a major city, the more likely you voted for the Republican. It was your geography. It was your education level. It was your class and it was your race. Those were the biggest predictors of of how you voted. Those are the biggest fissures in our country today. One can see us heading in a good direction on race in particular in this country, despite this moment that we're in, where the Supreme Court is doing this voting rights case, the affirmative action case. Um, you had the George Floyd protest. It can feel like we're heading back, that we're heading, or at least to a new bad place. You know, Democrats are saying, you know, Joe Biden gave a speech saying that the voting reforms in 19 states, four of which have Democratic governors, were Jim Crow 2.0. I found all of that deeply disturbing when you actually think about the bigger picture and the long term of where we're going, everyone's marrying each other as long as you belong to the same political party. 
And so some of these race distinctions are about to get erased the same way that the Irish versus Italian distinctions got erased within, you know, you didn't used to identify as white. You would identify as German, Irish, Italian, all of the little, you know, mutt countries over in Europe. We erased that because of intermarrying. We're probably going to erase the rest of it due to intermarrying. I don't mean tomorrow or in five years, but that's where things are headed at least. If people say that they would be more upset about their child bringing home someone of a different ideology, and then we just have to make sure we don't tear the country apart along those ideological lines, which maybe maybe we won't be able to do. I don't know. I mean, you remember the old CNN show, Crossfire? Uh, I really... Yeah, it had this guy named Tucker Carlson on it. <laughs> he wore a bow tie on every episode. Uh, yeah, I was a frequent guest on that one. I was at the DNC, usually going up against Sean Spicer from the RNC. And I always hated doing the show because it was like they would bring us on to fight with one another. Yes. We launched an event series here at Georgetown last year that I'm having so much fun with. We call it Ceasefire where we pick up an issue and we bring two people together, not to find common ground, but to lay down their swords and just try to better understand each other's perspective, right? We say it's not a debate, it's a dialogue. And the first one we did was on the urban-rural divide. And we brought in Keisha Lance Bottom, the former mayor of Atlanta, before she went into the Obama or the, the Biden administration, and Trey Gowdy, the former congressman from South Carolina. Trey is a smart, first, thoughtful guy, by the way. They both are. Yeah, yeah, sorry. She is too. I right? just mean but like... They are, but they both are, but they are both caricatures in the eyes of so many yep. of this urban-rural divide. And so they did not know each other. They had not met each other before. And my first question to each of them was, you know, Mayor, what is it that Trey's voters get wrong when they think about life in a city? Congressman, what is it we urban elite get wrong when we think about what it is your voters are looking for? It was supposed to be an hour-long conversation that went in an hour and a half because they kept asking each other questions. At one (laughs) point, she leaned back and said, you know, I had a preconceived notion of you that was wrong. It's astonishing to me how few conversations there are. This is Mo's college for adults that you want to build. This is what I want to build for for all of us, for, yes. for grownups especially, because it astonishes me how few opportunities there are for us to truly do that because of that big sort we talked about earlier. Because we don't, and the, the number of Hillary people that can never understand how Trump won because they've never met a Trump voter, the number of Trump people who don't understand why we're so surprised because they've never met a Hillary voter. This is my we concern just, with the college educated don't have thing. These conversations. Yeah. Where the college divide starts becoming the best predictor of how you voted, it will reinforce itself. You will have conservative parents not sending their kids, uh, not even applying. I mean, David French talks about this a lot, and it's a, you know, a really important, important thought to grasp. Where I grew up and where David grew up, if you were a great student. Your parents were excited for which state school you'd go to for free, not which Ivy League school you might get accepted to. And it's just this huge difference. And I think how uh, we're now putting these college students in even more of a bubble. And it's not a bubble because it's too liberal or it's too rich. It is both of those things. That's not my concern, though. My concern is that they think 
that their four-year experience, meeting people who are different from them and who are diverse in any number of other ways are representative of the country. And so we have them leaving after four years where, you know, this, this um, study that I mentioned from FIRE a while back, if there's three times the likelihood that you meet someone of color and that's directly correlated with them being liberal on your college campus, you're going to assume that that, even subconsciously, you're going to assume that that kind of holds true in the world, right? If you see a person of color out there, um, they're liberal. And taking that for granted, you probably don't even know you have that assumption based on your college experience. When the number's more like 33% are conservative, uh, maybe a little higher out in the country. Same with the gender divide on college campuses. Women are way more likely to be liberal on your college campus than they are in real life. And that urban-rural divide, the monetary divide, I mean, David told me this statistic yesterday and my head nearly fell off my body. That something like, this is the the school with the biggest divide on this. It's Washington University uh, in St. Louis, a great school, but not, this isn't Princeton. This isn't Yale. At Washington uh, University, something like 20% of the students come from a household that earns more than $650,000 a year. 6% of the students come from a household that earns less than $65,000 a year. Those students are going to leave assuming that the world kind of looks like what it looked like for them for four years. And if you're in that 6%, you're having a very odd experience that everyone, one out of five people you meet is incredibly rich. And vice versa, that that 20% is now going to think like, yeah, I'm actually pretty normal. I'm kind of middle class, frankly. You know, there's a lot of people way wealthier than I am. Like, no, no, that's insane, the bubble that you're being put in. And how do you break that? And what effect does that have on our politics? Yeah, look, I'm not here to be a spokesperson for academia, right? Like, I think that there are a lot of challenges and, and some of this is way above my pay grade. I think... Access to higher ed is part of the issue, right? Um, it, that helps calcify some of these uh, filter bubbles that we live in here that we see on college campuses. I also think that the cultural divide is becoming self-reinforcing. The number of conservative students who are applying to places. Uh, They're going to select out. They're going to opt themselves out. They're going to go to Hillsdale. They're going to go to these schools that seem at least not aggressively out to punish conservative students by making sure they can't get a job afterwards because they said something wrong in a class that got recorded. But then they're getting just an equally as equally skewed a view of reality on yes. the other side, right? Yeah, Hillsdale isn't representative either. <laughs> it's not at all representative of 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 most of America. So I, you know, so and, and it's a challenge. I invite conservative speakers all the time. I invite progressive speakers all the time. Guess which I have a better success rate with. Yeah, but now, let's talk about I that. You got... that. I think some of that is cynical, right? I think some of it is you know either a fear of being protested by the caricature of a college campus. I think also some of it is some folks out there don't want to give up the talking point that college campuses are hostile. 
Oh, Mo, though, the reason I wouldn't send my candidate, and I, by the way, I did send my candidate to talk to you, but the reason I wouldn't I is remember. because Thank you for that. it's not my people, right? Those aren't my voters. That's not my audience. As a conservative, I don't need to reach young people. It doesn't matter whether I can speak young people. Which is just as cynical, right? Yeah. It's just yeah, yeah. as cynical as a Democrat who won't go talk to rural America. Because it's the same exact thing. Vote. There aren't enough voters. Um, but but you did get former Vice President Mike Pence. And I think this was like a really great, hopeful note because after so many examples, and again, we only talk about the times where the man bites the dog. And so we only talk about the times where the students shut down an event, heckled someone, there was an assault, police had to call for backup. And we don't talk about all the number of times that a speaker shows up to campus and everything goes really well and the students were which is more to, often than not it's absolutely the the far more often colleges have speakers every single day I mean, and so just you had former last, vice president pence at georgetown at georgetown university i mean and look and over the past few years we've had people from marco rubio to speaker paul ryan to you know a couple weeks before uh the vice president we had governor doug ducey from arizona right we we bring in conservatives all the time Pence was an interesting one, and, and I was so grateful that he came. He came to do a talk on the future of the conservative movement, and part of the deal was he was going to take our student questions. We had filled the largest lecture hall on campus, which seats about 750 people. I would say not a majority of those students <laughs> uh, were supportive of the former vice president. You couldn't have filled a majority with the, the supportive ones. So there were a lot of skeptics in that room. There were some very angry students in that room. We were nervous because you hear about this all the time, right? Because of the caricature that's painted, like, will there be protests? Will anyone try to shut it down? Our students did not. There was a couple of dozen students who were legitimately angry with the, him. And so they organized a silent walkout. They stood up in the middle of a speech and they walked out en masse. Didn't disrupt, didn't stop him from speaking, didn't prevent any other student from listening. I mean, I do think that's a little disruptive, but I agree it is not comparatively disruptive to what we've been seeing in the past. Like the point was when you're walking out to be a little disruptive. I'm trying, well, we're not trying to dissuade dissent at the same time. Yeah. Right? The best dissent in our nation's history came from, were born on college campuses. And so. Is that true? So <laughs> I, I, I like to say it. But I mean, <laughs> I'm just thinking back to, you know, the proto-abolitionist movement. I don't think that was on college campuses. Okay, and that was an amazing yeah, but, dissent movement of women, but, often women. So, so, so <laughs> I'll tweak it to say, I think that. There is a long and rich tradition, both in this country and around the world, of students dissenting and, and leading some form of change. So to see students respectfully march out in order to voice their dissent, but so many more students stay to listen, to understand, and most importantly for me, to question Right. He agreed to take any question. We didn't screen the questions. We just put mic stands up and told students to line up. And they asked him some hard questions. They asked him some tough questions. Our students wanted that opportunity. I don't think he walked out of there converting many people to become you know, Penn supporters or even to become conservatives. 
But I, I tell this a, a, a different story often. I'm, as some of your listeners know, my side gig is I'm a Democratic contributor at Fox. And if you believe Twitter, I am the devil incarnate after every one of my, after every one of my hits. But then I'll be walking through an airport somewhere or at an amusement park somewhere with my kids and I will invariably get stopped and people will say, you're that Democrat on Fox. I don't ever agree with you, but at least you're not one of the crazy ones, right? Like they take the time to listen because I'm taking the time to engage with them. And we can use a lot more of that everywhere. I totally agree that Pence probably didn't convert anyone to be a Pence voter or a conservative in that audience, but that's not the point. That's as we both have talked about. That's not the point. The point is to have them see not the caricature, but the real person and hear the motivation, not what they assume the motivation to be and accept that. Do you think that that was accomplished? I don't think it's, I don't think one speech will ever accomplish that. Right. But I think that approach, I want those students to come to every speaker I bring on campus. I had Pete Buttigieg on campus one week before we had Mike Pence. I want the same students to come and listen to both speak. I want them to hear the arguments both sides are making. And I want them to figure out with how to better counter the, the speaker they disagree with by not assuming their motivations, not saying they are terrible people, but by saying, okay, if this is what they are speaking to, let me meet people there. Here's my concern, Mo. You and I were trained up as political operatives in an era that might be dead as of next cycle. The New York Times just had this piece about how the new communications operatives... I just saw that, yeah. (laughs) I want to talk about it because the thesis was uh, basically our jobs, our roles were as staffers. We were working behind the scenes, killing stories, shaping stories, trying to put in comments from our person. Um, But at the end of the day, we didn't look that different from a field staffer or any other person working on a campaign. Um, You know, maybe we were the ones calling on some questions so we were a little more visible or our names might be in there when we didn't want the candidate's name on a quote. There's all those memes of like... (laughs) fundraising comms field, you know, where it's like different celebrities. Like, yeah, the comms one was always like a little more put together, but nothing like the finance people, frankly. (laughs) They were the high rollers who looked cool. And that now that's not really the case. The comms director, as we saw during the Trump administration, as we are seeing in Florida for Ron DeSantis, for instance, is almost a vice candidate a deputy candidate. They are celebrities in their own way. They have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. They do their own TV. They're not part of the campaign. They're not an operative in any traditional sense. It's like having a sidekick or a fly girl running with you. And if that's the case, they don't need to understand the other side because their job is to sort of be the attack dog, ramp up the extremists, character, caricature the other side and get that anger and outrage going. Are we training our college students for a job that doesn't exist anymore? Is a question I asked myself this morning. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't think we're training our college students to do that. But I think our campaigns are training the next generation of operatives to do that. And that worries me. 
That's what I mean. I that like our, yeah. I, I literally, my job is to teach these kids in my college class how to be comms operatives. And they're going to go out to these jobs and be like, everything Sarah told me was useless. Yeah. So I, I look at what's going on, right? It, so part of it is the nature of communications has changed. When I work, I worked on Hillary Clinton's first campaign for president back in 2007, 2008. I sometimes startle myself when I remember that the very first iteration of the iPhone was released in the middle of that campaign. Twitter wasn't around. There was no Twitter. Twitter, right? Twitter became a political thing the next year. And everyone thought it was revolutionary when the Obama White House would release press schedules on Twitter as opposed to doing it through your traditional media advisory. My first campaign, like... I remember faxing press releases. I was out. so good at the fax machine. That was what really was my rise to fame. Right, I tell students that now, and they're like, "What? What was that first word? When it starts with an F?" <laughs> right. I mean, just the nature of how we communicate has changed so rapidly, but also the prism with which we're watching this change is so skewed because you look at these oftentimes younger, digitally native. Uh, communication staffers, and they are excited when they get six-figure Twitter followings, and they can put out the video that goes viral, and they don't need to talk to the local reporters in order to get the attention that they want for their campaigns and, frankly, for themselves. And they look around and they say, well, okay, local press is dying a slow, painful, horrible death. And I'm going to get a lot more exposure for my candidate if I put out this viral tweet or this viral video and it gets picked up by Fox or MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And they get all the retweets and it validates that perspective. And it builds their own brand as well. But what, what I don't think we can say enough, despite how cliche it has become, is Twitter is not the real world. You were talking earlier about how few number of people proportionally actually watch Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. An even fewer number of people are following political Twitter. They are incredibly active people, but that's not where most Americans are actually getting their news or getting their information. Um, And so... The way people are getting their information is changing, but I don't think politics and, and these young, uh, new, this new generation of campaign operatives get it. And I don't know if it matters to them if they were to realize that, because they are creating these brands. They are creating the buzz that's important to them in the communities that they think are important to them and their boss. Um, it's changing the overall you know, dialogue, but is it really impacting voters? I I question that. So about six months ago, I went on a little tour and talked to the communications staffer for a lot of the nascent 2024 candidates. And at great conversations, they really help, you know, me, I'm sure you've done similar things. It's just important to check in every now and then. These are your former colleagues as well. Yeah. And the number one thing I heard when I asked, what's the difference between now and 2016, the last time that we were all out in the field? And they said, um, we're not going to do any of these interviews anymore. 
We don't need to. They don't reach our people. Uh, the only time that we would do them, and this is like, for me, I was like, oh, they're right is the problem. Like from a strategist standpoint, not our jobs is trying to save America or whatever we're doing. But if we were just back trying to win the next game, uh, they said, the only time I'm going to send my candidate to do a big interview is when I want it to blow up, like send them on the view so that they get ravaged and attacked on the view so that they can fight back. And then I'm going to send out the clip of them fighting back the same thing I would do with any other clip of them speaking. But yeah, sometimes I'm going to want the view or ladies as a foil. But otherwise, like I'm not sitting down with 60 minutes. I'm not sitting down with um, the Sunday shows. Why would I? That's not a good use of my candidate's time. Woof. And we're seeing it play out now. How many of these majorly competitive statewide races for governor and Senate are doing one debate? I know. Yeah. Right? Like it used to be we had to do at least three. Three. In a statewide campaign, at least three and in different regions of the state. And it's being driven by candidates on both sides, right? Right. Um, where, you know, the Republican in one state will be the one, who, you know, and it, it is always true in every race that one candidate wants debates more than the other for whatever reason, yeah. but we're now limiting them to one because it just, it, they, they see the imperative has, has changed and you're right. I mean, we had 20, 20 to 30 students march out uh, of Pence's speech. Pence spent most of his speech talking about civility and praising Georgetown for having this dialogue and praising the students for engaging in the dialogue. Uh, 30 students out of 800 marched out. Those seats were quickly filled by 30 more students who wanted to listen, but that's not what you saw in conservative media, right? Conservative media made it sound like the woke mob had almost, almost shut down Mike Pence uh, at Georgetown. And I'll bet you that Mike Pence's team, they were fine if the event went like it did, which was a good event, solid event. But they would have been more fine if it had been shut down. It would have gotten more attention. It would have painted him as standing up to the woke mob. Just from a headline standpoint, who doesn't want their candidate in all the headlines? And you had a very um, dog bites man event. What these candidates look for now is all these dudes biting dogs. I give them credit for coming. I give them credit for talking to our students and taking their questions. And I give his team credit. They were great to work with. Um, But I have no doubt that if it had gone that direction, that would have been a talking point in a future speech. Um, I think that there are some candidates out there that are looking for those, that level of confrontation. I mean, I I know there's pundits now who do it. You can make a living off of going to college campuses and never speaking. That's right. That's right. You get a book deal, you get a TV deal. And that's some of these comms directors that we were talking about building their own brands. We saw how Twitter affected journalists who were no longer really tethered to their outlets because they could have a Twitter brand and move from outlet to outlet as long as they were sort of maintaining and building that separate brand on Twitter. I think we're about to see something very similar with campaign operatives, which I don't know the effect of that. It'll be interesting. We'll see. I, well, I, do, I know the effect of that. The effect of it is going to be a further uh, degradation of our of our dialogue. That you like go work for a candidate in the district that you want to run for after them. You know, like you know, you sort of pledge loyalty 
in a little fiefdom sense. It'll be like the feudal system of candidacies. <laughs> no, and, and I, I do wonder how many candidates are going to be recruiting, you know, people mock Donald Trump because he'd look up at TV, see someone defending him and then hire them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, candidates have always tried to recruit the best staff, but now are they going to be trying to recruit the biggest celebrities? Um, and I worry about what that means too. Speaking of huge celebrities, um, Halloween is coming mm -hmm. up. You have mm -hmm. two delightful children. Are we still dressing up for Halloween? We are, though we've moved away from the family themed costume. Oh, those you know, are the when best. they were young. We you know, we would every year pick one theme and, and all pick our own costumes within that theme. Kids now are too cool to do that. There's so we're all dressing up. I'm gonna miss that a little bit, but it also means I can go as what I really want every year now. And I, I can go <laughs> as spooky and as, as I want. And and so there's there's a little freedom. What are some of, of your good family costumes that y'all did? Um, well, you know, some of it was, was, you know, we, the year we did Harry Potter, I made a really mean Hagrid. I oh, was really nice. good Hagrid. Yeah. Um, we did rock stars one year, which was amazing. When my then six-year-old son came out as Michael Jackson and I was Prince and my daughter is <laughs> Britney Spears. Um, we, we've done, which uh, Britney Spears was she? Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Um, so yeah, we've done some fun ones. We did, you know, super villains one year and, and all that is, has, was fun. And I'm excited because they still want to trick or treat. They just want to be their own people. And I, that's all a parent can, can ask for. So my son is named Nate, as you know, and um, we <laughs> went to, there's a nature center that's like a mile away and they have a, a great horned owl, sorry, not a great horned, a barred owl that can't be released due to a wing injury and it's really fun because if you go sort of at dusk, the neighborhood barred owls, one of them at least, has a big crush on the lady barred owl that's in <laughs> captivity and keeps calling to her. And it's like this unrequited love, but you can go hear really loud, booming barred owl noises, you know, in the middle of the suburbs of DC. So we go there all the time. And inside, um, they have, you know, some snakes and my son likes practicing his hissing for some reason. Um, and the other day we were there and they were like, oh, are you here for the program? And I was like, what's the program? <laughs> so Nate and I attended, it was like maybe 20 minutes. And it was basically the history of human civilization. And kind of it started with the rise of humans from, you know, protozoa through, we did some Galileo making yeah. uh, telescopes. And it ends with Apollo launching... <laughs> And so my son was so into the rocket that we went home and watched a lot of uh, videos of rockets taking off and the shuttle launches. And then I did the Elon Musk, how not to launch a rocket booster where all the rockets keep blowing up and then they keep trying. And it's a good lesson, right? You try again and you try again and you try again. And then at the very end, Nate goes, they did it. And we watched that one over and over again. So he will be going as an astronaut. <laughs> oh, that's so. Uh, that was a long windup, but the pitch was worth it. That was very good. That was very good. Though I will say, my biggest takeaway from that um, was enjoying the very, you know, the the owl story and this tale of just romance and unrequited love. And it is maybe the most romantic picture of anything in the DC area I have heard in so long. And I think more people need to realize that romance is not dead in the city. You know, we had a. Um a dispatch staff retreat and 
Steve's youngest daughter made us all sign up for the talent show. And my talent <laughs> at the dispatch staff retreat was different species of owl calls. That is both amazing and completely unsurprising. Yes. Yes. <laughs> she was concerned. She made me audition before I could actually perform at the talent show. Cause I told her one of the owls is called a screech owl. Um, so I had to audition first cause she was worried that it was going to be like a scary owl. And I was like, no, no, they're like super tiny. Totally fine. Have you shared, have you shared this with, with remnant or dispatch listeners yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, it's important to know my mother was a federal and state licensed wildlife rehabilitator and she specialized in raptors and I'm an only child. So like when we talk about being bilingual, like I speak owl as a primary language. We had rats in the freezer. You would defrost them in the microwave because you never know when like there's going to be a storm and you're going to have owls coming in. But screech owls, um, I don't know if they're just building flimsier nests, but anyway, we would end up with a lot of screech owl babies all the time. Um, so, okay. Okay. Here's the screech owl. That is, uh, that was worth it. That was worth all of it. All the podcast. All the podcasts. There's all hope yet for Thank our you. politics in America. Thank you. That's it. We need more food trucks and more screech owl. That's right. Uh, there well, it is. Mo, there's our There's our formula. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to see you again for NPR here real soon. And we're just going to do this exact conversation. But we have to be much shorter in our answers. Much shorter. Yeah, and we and we need more owl calls. Yeah, yeah. If you out me on NPR, I'm gonna be I'm mad. So I'm, I'm so gonna <laughs> out you on NPR. <laughs> Mo Lethe, thank you for joining us. And Remnant listeners, uh, become a member of the Dispatch and hop in the comments section so that uh, you can have your own thoughts on owl calls and what owls you would like to hear next. I cannot wait to read those. And with that, we'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast. 